Hi, and welcome to episode two of 69, the other side of 69. <laughs> the flip side. We change places. <laughs> the other the other angle. <laughs> oh, God. The flip, the flip fuck side of 69. Exactly, yes. Um, then we're going to be talking about Slumdog Millionaire in 2008. And what I, Ryan and I had already been working together by then, and this was the year where we had one of our only major conflicts, I think, which was, was that I was a wrestler fan and he was a milk fan. Oh, I would almost forgotten about that. Because yeah. I, I like to try to block those things because it I makes know. me so uncomfortable. But yeah, I was really, I was, and it wasn't that I was so much not a wrestler fan, but I was really, I was really into Sean Penn and milk winning. And, and you hated, and, um, what's his name? Uh, Ricky and, Rourke. Uh, Dustin Lance Black, right? You hated Mickey Rourke, remember? It was oh, like... well, yeah, it's not... I, you know what? It's the same thing I've said many, many times before. I really don't like boxing or wrestling movies. I don't really care for movies where the only thing... Where the guys, the only option they have in life is to go beat up on other guys. That doesn't interest me too yeah. much as a character, as a know. lifestyle. I, just, I was really moved by his character. I still think Sean Penn deserved to win, but uh, I was moved by, by Mickey Rourke in that, that film. Anyway, let's talk about Slumdog Millionaire. Okay. No, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, I really have to, back to Sean Penn and, and Mickey Rourke, I really have to think that it was razor's edge uh, split decision between the two. Um, Mickey Rourke won the BAFTA for Best Actor, and everyone was expecting after that that he would go ahead and take the Oscar, too. He had won, They had pretty much divided the awards running up to the Oscars, and so it could have gone in either direction, and I think it was probably just a handful of votes that made the decision. So yeah. they were really, really close. I don't think they like him. I don't think he's classy enough for them. You know, he doesn't... He's too. He's he's burned too many bridges in Hollywood, and he's just too low class. I think for the for the Kodak. In a way, the BAFTA win might have cinched that. Yeah, that exactly. Impression because he was a little bit wild and rough, and didn't he didn't he cuss or something on stage at the BAFTAs or? Yeah, know, he was always he wasn't sophisticated enough. I don't think in the yeah. in the awards run, he was cute and sad and really grateful, but it just. At the end of the day, it was kind of like, you know, um, they went for the one like they always do, the one with more Best Picture Heat, you know, and Milk had more Best Picture Heat. It was a Best Picture nominee, a Dustin Lance Black won screenplay, and I believe Gus Van Zandt was nominated for Best Director. So it already had all that, and at the Oscars, it generally follows that, for instance, when Eddie Murphy didn't win for Dreamgirls and Alan Arkin did, that was Best Picture Heat. It was a combination of them not liking... Eddie Murphy, maybe, possibly. And or they just really liked Little Miss Sunshine. Well, they really liked Milk. And so they really liked they liked it enough to nominate it in all those categories and to give the award for screenplay to Dustin Lance Black. So it makes more sense that Sean Penn would have won for that. Um, Milk had social significance behind it, yes, too. Yes, exactly. That was the same year as Prop 8 in California, and everyone's mind was on that, too, right? Remember that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely, and it was it was groundbreaking. It's still mm-hmm. groundbreaking, actually. The, the Harvey Milk story—it's incredible, and it was beautifully filmed. And Sean Penn was fantastic as Harvey Milk. Um, maybe his best performance, or certainly one of them. Um, yeah, he's fantastic in it. And doesn't James Franco play his boyfriend? Or uh... yeah. James Franco plays his boyfriend, his lover. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, at the very beginning there. Yeah, that's right. I'd forgotten yeah. that. The very first hookup he makes is with James Franco, I think. Yeah. That was before the worm had turned on James Franco and everybody started hating him. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Oh, Greg. Yes. But it probably it was a, it was a significant because that's the year that James Franco realized that he was bi. I think in real life, probably. 
Yeah. I'm kidding. <laughs> Wishful thinking. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, it was the year he started liking women over 40, too. <laughs> Not. <laughs> It was a it was a it was a good win for Milk, um, but there was one movie that kind of dominated Oscars 2008, and that was Slumdog Millionaire, which came into the race when Benjamin Button was kind of the big Oscar frontrunner, and um, already, and it was it was the big kind of mon- um, what's the word of a big giant Ju- thing juggernaut juggernaut, and um, the Slumdog Millionaire was. It had a perfect Oscar story heading into the race because the story was right before it got seen and wherever it got seen first, which was Telluride or Toronto, one of these film festivals, I think it was Telluride, that it was going to be a straight-to-video movie and that it couldn't get a distributor and that nobody thought it was going to get any kind of theatrical release. And then people started seeing it. And it was one of those movies. It was like the artist. It was just like, you know... Um, just flat out 100% love no ifs, ands, or buts about it it was going to win everything I remember having a conversation with David Carr who was this was his last year Oscar blogging at the New York Times and he was asking me about it and I said yep Slumdog Millionaire just just won or just was seen in Toronto or something like that and and I said and now you're about to start seeing it win everything and it did it won everything Everything. It even won the SAG Ensemble Award. And it was such a boring year for David Carr that he said, I just can't do this anymore. <laughs> I was like, I don't know how you can do it. Those, on a those year sweeps like this. years can be just debilitating, can't they? When a movie sweeps to that extent, it can just absolutely drain you and just you just you just give up. Yeah, it just kept winning. It kept mm-hmm. winning. It kept winning. There was it had no competition because once it beat Benjamin Button, it that no other movie could touch it. You know, it had no. Benjamin Button was the only thing standing in its way, and it was an easy call. David Fincher is the perfect foil for a guy like Danny Boyle or Tom Hooper because David Fincher's not touchy feely. He's not nice like they are. Um, on he is in person, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't. You know, kiss babies as they say. He doesn't. Um, mm. He doesn't do what they do. And Danny Boyle, every time the camera was on him, he just was so gracious and grateful and happy and would bound up on stage and was just so happy to win. And people love that. They love giving their awards to people who like to win like that or who are and grateful. And don't, don't forget the adorable little urchins that were in the film that were dragged uh, every every <laughs> single public appearance and made to look cute. Like the dog. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. the dog and the artist. Like Uggy. <laughs> Except Uggy's had a better life since the movie than these kids have had. <laughs> You're so right. Oh my God, that's harsh, but it's so true. And, and watching Slumdog Millionaire again, really, the kids are what sell that movie. I mean, it's like it's yeah. fine. It's a sweet love story, and he's great. Jamal is great, and Latika, she's great too. You know, they're sweet. They're adorable. You fall in love with them, but it's a pretty, pretty generic story without those kids. Mm-hmm. But when you start seeing those scrappy little kids and the begging and the orphans and the running away and the sold into sex slavery and you just want to see them win. And that's Jamal, grown up and winning, uh, who wants to be a millionaire. Um, it, it, it is, it is you know, told in a, in a kind of a very vivid, beautiful way by Danny Boyle and his um, cinematographer. His name is... Uh, what's his name, Ryan? The cinematographer. Oh my gosh, I can't even think. Um, Come on, he's famous. What's his name? Danny Boyle. No, no. not Danny Boyle. <laughs> Wait a second. I'll, 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 I keep wanting to say Ari 
Uh, oh God, this is terrible. Anthony Dodd Mantle. Anthony Dodd Mantle, thank you. Yes, yes. His cinematography is fantastic because he has this handheld camera. He's running around all these places and and with the music, A.R. Raman, you just had those. You had the music, you had that cinematography, and you had Danny Boyle's style. Um, it was a beautiful combination, um, completely vibrant film to watch. And then you had those fucking kids, and the kids were unbeatable, just like the dog was unbeatable. And the artist, you, mm-hmm. can, you know, loving a bit with the dog. Like there's just I something. I was so apprehensive about Slumdog Millionaire because it, it was one of those movies that that everyone gets to see at the festivals and in, in, in private VIP screenings in October and November and December, and then it doesn't open in the rest of the country until the middle of January. Literally, it, it opened just in time to to qualify in Los Angeles and New York, but the rest of the country didn't get Slumdog until until January, until the next year had already started. And so I was dying to know what it was about and so i got the novel that it was based on and the novel was wickedly brutally disgustingly weird every you know the premise of some millionaire is that every question that he answers somehow relates to an episode of his past life so he he knows the answer because something has happened so he can he can associate it with something that's happened to him and that's the book the book is divided up into chapters the same way except every single chapter has to do with child molestation and it was weird that it was so obsessed with that subject and i thought how in the hell are they ever going to turn this into a movie and so they did it by just totally changing the book they just threw all that out and all they kept was the hook that he was on the millionaire show and threw out all of the relationship to all the questions but the book was bizarre so it's another one of those circumstances where the so much credit goes to simon Beaufoy for adapting that book and turning it into something that was palatable to audiences yeah Sorry for such a rant there, but no, I mean that's that was one thing I do remember about the movie that I was I would didn't have, I couldn't see how anybody could be loving that movie, knowing <laughs> what I knew about the novel. <laughs> it's it was huge. I mean, it's still kind of huge. The Slumdog Millionaire. It's still a movie, just like any Oscar Best Picture winner. You can sit anybody down in front of, and they're going to get it if not love it. And in this case, they loved it, and nothing else was going to beat it. Nothing. Oh, go before he kills us both. Do something for me. Anything. Then forget me. What? No. I'll wait. The VD station, five o'clock, every day until you come. So, Jamal, which cricketer has scored the most first-class centuries in history? A. Sachin Tendulkar B. Ricky Ponting C. Michael Slater or D. Jack Hobbs But remember, if you answer wrong, you lose everything just like this. So, do you want to do this? Dreams 
hundreds of so many on the floor. for commercial break, ladies and gentlemen. I know, I know, I can't stand the tension either. We'll be right back. That was that. Slumdog Bingham came along and everybody just kind of hung their hats and we still had like months and months of Oscar blogging to do. You, so, did, you didn't go to, were you at Telluride that year? or would, No. I don't think so, okay, yeah. I wasn't. But yeah, we knew because the gondolas were rocking in Telluride the day that that premiered. <laughs> That's all you heard on Twitter. It's was that the gondola the gondolas one? Like Everybody's just like humping that movie. Oh, God, oh, God. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> just couldn't, they just flipped for it. Yeah, it's, it's, it, was, it was done. It's a done deal, and so everything else that we had any hopes for for the rest of the year, even though we got we both started out really liking Danny Boyle a lot. Who couldn't like him? And in the movie, like you said, is adorable. And the first time we saw it, we were like, okay, we can accept this. But then on Oscar night, I remember when it just started winning everything. Everything that it won, I hated that movie more and more. <laughs> Every Oscar that it won, I hated it a little bit more. <laughs> Uh, 
yeah. I and haven't watched it, it since 2008. The first time was just recently before this podcast. I watched it again, and I thought, you know, it's still a good movie, but um, but I don't find that it has the same depth as Benjamin Button, which is a movie I can actually dive into, just like with every other Fincher movie. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons he's my one of my favorite directors is that as it's a different movie for me every time I watch it. And Benjamin Button, I find your viewing and your experience of it changes as you age, which is the weird, ironic byproduct of his making that movie about aging backwards. I don't know if um, if that was intended, but that's really what the result is about Benjamin Button. It, you you age along with it, mm-hmm. um, and you watch your feelings about aging changes as as you watch it. I do want to say real quick, though, before we move away from Slumdog, I know that so many people and so many of our listeners are probably really, really fond of Slumdog and are really, really think that it deserved the Oscar. And I'm not saying that it didn't, and I'm not saying that I cannot understand how people like that movie, but for people who cover the Oscars, we had to carry Slumdog on our back for four months, hauling that thing around for four months on our back, and it can exhaust you by by Oscar night, right? So it's a little bit different because we. I just felt like it was just forced down my throat with that movie so much well i tell you if it came along now it would really get ugly because at least even back then there were already too many people covering the oscars and Mm. now there are twice as many as there were then and the thing is is we need filler you know we need filler to do our jobs and if you Mm -hmm. don't have that filler you're going to start eating your (laughs) eating off your own limbs and start eating your young and doing crazy things like hating a movie like slumdog millionaire which is a perfectly fine film it's just that it it got, you know, it just, it just was a really boring story to tell. And then mm-hmm. Slumdog. There was no race. There's no, there's no competition. It's already the, the race was already run won in October, and so there's nothing left to talk about. Well, there so, were there were other categories. Like that's when one of the things David Carr said at the end of the season. He said to me, he said, you know, it's really only fun writing about the Oscars when it's about Best Picture, isn't it? And I said, yeah, pretty much. And I've been doing it for 15 years, and I know that that's true. When Best Picture is sewn up, it's a boring Oscar year, even if you have all these other great categories to fight for like Viola Davis versus Meryl Streep for Best Actress. And, and then this year it was Mickey Rourke versus Sean Penn. It was uh, Milk. You know, it was it, there were some other things to talk about besides Slumdog Millionaire. But when it's Best Picture, that Best Picture is the turkey, you know, on Thanksgiving. It's the thing. It's the shit, you know. And, and, and that's what everybody likes to talk about and write about. So when it's not Best Picture, I mean, not necessarily on our side. On Awards Daily, they tend to be much more into the, into the Best Actress race for some reason. Mm-hmm. But me, I'm, yeah. I'm totally into Best Picture, and David Carr is into Best Picture, and a lot of people who write about it are into that. Like, I mean, that's it's just the top. It's cool that you and he are such good buddies, and you've known him for since way, way back, right? Yeah, we were yeah, really, so. yeah, we were, he was, he came on the scene, you know, um, a newbie, and he hooked Another- up with me. Kind of interesting thing, speaking of David Carr, his book, Night of the Gun, came out like just a few months after that Oscar season. After, after, So he may have been just deciding that maybe after reliving everything that he needed to relive in order to write the book and then going through the publication of his book and the book tour and everything that he had to do, he might have just decided that you know he's ready to move on to the other thing. Another thing that happened that year, and I credit this entirely to David Carr now that you bring it up, was he had actually... We were pretty good friends then. We're not this good of friends anymore, but... Uh, we talked on the phone a lot, and he would—he hired me um, to transcribe a lot of his interviews for that book, actually, because he knew I needed oh, wow. a job. I needed money. I needed a job because then I was, 
that's when I was working as a janitor and a teacher's aide and doing my website and farming out my ads to David Poland, and I was only making a tiny bit of money. And David Carr is the one who advised me to go out on my own and to not do that anymore. And he's like, you're working as a janitor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're working as a janitor. You can do better than this. And so, you know, I totally credit him and, and owe so much to him because of that. He did me the biggest favor anyone has ever done. And in fact, to this day, he remains, along with Jeff Wells, and this is the one reason why I'm loyal to Jeff Wells, is that these two guys are the only men in this very patriarchal industry, blogging, who have who have given me a break, who have given me the time of day, who have helped me, who have respected my place in the business and seen me as a pioneer in this field. The other guys, they just want to run over and pretend that I don't really, that I'm not an important voice. And those guys, you know, both were very supportive and very encouraging um, early on. I, I can really feel I can feel it. And I, I could sense it for a long time, and I knew especially about your relationship with David Carr, but it's like they want to wrap you up in a blanket, and other bloggers want to come along and pull the rug out from under you. Pretty much. They just, or, and, or just ignore. And, yeah. and, you know, and I, when you're a woman in this field, it's tough because it is run by men, you know, and it's, it's almost as though what you say doesn't matter. Well, when David Carr was around, if I wrote an article about the Oscars, it would make it to the New York Times. The New mm-hmm. York Times would reference that. He would read it and reference it and say she's writing some really good stuff. Nobody else does that. So for me, he's greatly missed, you know, in that regard. But, um, but that's neither here nor there. It's been this many years since he he's been blogging. This was his last year, so that was yeah, how long changed. ago? Six years ago. Yeah. So, but I I owe him a great deal of debt for for my life, the way it went, ended up going. But um, so and, and just really quickly, I want to say we're going to move on to Benjamin Button now. Um, uh, Craig, is there anything you want to say about Slumdog Millionaire? Um, I have a love-hate relationship with it, and it makes makes me feel bad, though, that the movie gets kicked to the curb now just because it was an Oscar player. If it hadn't been, I think people would have fonder memories of it because it is a likable film. It's just watching it after the fact, I can't, I can't divorce myself from the, the story of the real kids who are in it and how horrible their lives have been since, and it just kind of... it. It sort of puts a little smiley face on poverty, and that sort of doesn't sit well with me. But the actual, at the time, watching the movie, it was it was perfectly likable and, and actually delightful. And I think, you know, if it didn't if it didn't if it didn't have so much Oscar success, I think people would be kinder to it. Hmm. I I don't have so much I have so much against Danny Boyle the way that I have against the movie itself because I've always I was always a fan of Danny Boyle because of what he had done up until then. He had done that uh, train spotting in Shallow Grave in another movie that that involves children that I think is far and away a much, much better movie than Slumdog Millionaire. To me, it's called Millions. I don't know if we talked about it much I in 2004 millions. when we covered 2004, but Sasha, I know your sister really likes Millions a lot. No, that was I one love of the it movies too. That we touched base I on. love it too, Millions. I love that movie. It's mm-hmm. a great movie. Millions to me is so much a better movie than Slumdog Millionaire. So anyone who's already a fan of Danny Boyle already knows about that movie but any of our listeners who haven't seen it we highly recommend that you seek that movie out i've been a huge fan of danny boyles for years i love shallow grave i mean i even like the beach for god's sake but um right i think he's a great director and i thought he was a great director leading up to that and i think slumdog millionaire is a perfect film for his for his canon and i i kind of agree with craig in that the oscar smear is on it but nonetheless Mm. it was a movie that got into the race and couldn't couldn't help but win it's just 
People loved it. But um, what do you mean about the kids, Craig? Well, what's happening with that? There, there's an article, and you can Google it. It was on USA Today, and like, like months after the Oscars, long after people had forgotten about Slumdog Millionaire and the little kids in it, who were actual real kids from, from the, the area of India where the movie took place. But um, it, even, it has a picture of the little boy, um, Muhammad, uh, Azrudin Muhammad Ishmael, and he's holding desperately to his little pet chicken standing underneath a, a rumpled Slumdog Millionaire poster. And it, basically the authorities showed up to tear down his illegally built shanty because monsoon season was coming. And it's just... I, I think that the reality of these kids' lives was kind of done a disservice by the generally upbeat, happy-feeling movie when you start to understand the reality of it. And it, well, we, it wasn't that there part some is concerning. financial we it on the deal, site. It was within a week after the Oscars. It was in a matter of days, maybe two or three days after the Oscars, people were already writing about the fact that they had plucked these kids out of the slum in order to put them in the movie, and as soon as Oscar night was over, they put them right back in the slums. But they I thought they right gave them. To where they I came thought there from. was some um, restitution or some money given to them after too. I, yeah, I believe this, because this of the was outcry. an article written in May of 2009, so it was it was after the spotlight was off. Uh, I believe there was such an outcry when people found out about what what, what the, the way they had treated these kids that they put them right back where they came from. That they said, "No, wait a minute. This movie has made hundreds of millions of dollars. These kids deserve a piece of that action." And so then they had to do that, but in order to save face. But as like Craig's, I said, the restitution. But, but still, that's two kids out of the millions who are living in squalor every day. Right, mm-hmm. right. And that's that's just kind of it. when I if I don't think about it, and a lot of times maybe you should shouldn't think about these kind of things, but it just kind of sours the happy, feely, touchy, goody goody feeling about right. the movie. Right, because it's sort of like a chance for white people to feel okay about third exactly. world poverty. It's like okay, we we went to Disney's poverty world, and then. <laughs> Now we've gone home and back to our swank hotel rooms and everything's fine. We did our little part for the world and now everything's great. Oh, God, because Jamal Jamal won all that money, so now we're... um now everything's fine because he won all that, the millions and everything's fine in India now because, yay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, right. But it's still it's still a lovable movie. You can't deny how great those little kids were, and the cinematography that you've already mentioned, and yeah, and the Bollywood song at the end, which was the part that really sold it for me, was just that 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 crazy Bollywood number at the mm-hmm. end. That was Jai a knockout ho. for sure. That was great. Well, uh, speaking of Bollywood, you bring up a good point because I don't know how many Bollywood movies you guys have seen, but the one I saw, which I really loved, was like a three-hour baseball movie, and it was like this guy, you know, and, and all of course all in between they're doing these crazy dances and stuff but it had a slumdog millionaire like plot like these bollywood movies they love these ridiculous absurd happy endings and the Mm -hmm. ironic thing about that i thought was that yes because places that are deep in poverty like america in the 1930s for instance they crave those kind of happy endings and they that's why they go to the movies to escape their poverty, and so a lot of Bollywood movies serve that um, function in their in their culture. The funny thing about it was it was then taken to um, America, where we're supposed to be above all that, and where we're supposed to not need that kind of happy ending. and And you have a Hollywood system that can't tolerate new storytelling that doesn't have a happy ending like that. It's just it's just totally blown away by this Bollywood kind of 
happy ending, you know? The extra irony of that is that Bollywood is Mumbai, which is the slum that Slumdog Millionaire took place in. I mean, obviously not the entire city of Mumbai is a slum, but that's the Indian version of Hollywood. That's where it's, yeah. that's where it's centered. Yeah. So you, you have this weird fantasy factory existing amid some of the most crushing poverty on the planet. Yeah, but they love their fucking movies because yeah. their movies take them out of that poverty briefly. And so for that, that's okay, but it's just kind of gross that, like, white people would then kind of piggyback on top of that. You know what I mean? Like, just it's just a little ew. Mm, it, it's a little yeah. discomforting, but I think that is that was the intention of Danny Boyle and all the people who worked on the film, is I think they were... They were doing a nod to that style of filmmaking. I don't think they necessarily thought about the socio-political, you know, whatever of it. It was just, we love these Bollywood movies yeah. and we want to do a little thing like that here. Exactly, yes. And I think their intentions were perfectly great, but it, it just, it, I can't help having a little bit of a negative taste in my mouth watching it. But that kind of happy ending, like him just getting all the right answers and winning all that money, that was exactly like the Bollywood movie that I saw about baseball. It was like, it was, the odds were stacked so high against this guy winning but of course when he finally wins it's like everybody does the Bollywood happy dance and everybody's happy and everything <laughs> it's just so great that's the one thing about Slumdog Millionaire that I really I really did like was that it was a it was a Bollywood movie in the end it was really that but you know Americans don't need fucking Bollywood you know we're grown up now we're like I don't mean so. Sorry, cut that out. I don't mean not grown up. I mean you know what I mean. I mean we're not. Mm-hmm. We're, no, I don't think you have to cut it out. I think you. It's un, it's it's no, okay many to say parts if you of our, explain what you mean. Many right. parts of our cult, our our country are steeped in poverty, and that's why they right. watch you know Duck Dynasty and and Kim Kardashian and all that crap, right? Mm-hmm. But. Slumdog Millionaire wasn't necessarily aimed at that crowd. It was aimed at the the you know the the. Kind of the Hollywood liberals. comfortable Hollywood liberals mm-hmm. who needed to feel good about India, right? This is like, as I say, poverty tourism, whatever. We need to feel okay about those impoverished children in India. Right. So we love this movie. You know, here, here, are impoverished children. Here are your Oscars. See how good we are. We're such good people. We love you. you know? And we talk about every year about how the movie with the happiest ending is is probably going to win Best Picture. And this particular year, Slumdog, Slumdog Millionaire was the only Best Picture nominee with a happy ending. <laughs> I mean, compared to Benjamin Button and Frost Nixon and Milk and The Reader. Oh my God, The Reader. All of those movies were really depressingly tragic. Yeah, for no, sure. So the, Slumdog was the only movie that wasn't tragic. So easy for Slumdog to really stand out in that crowd. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, so let's talk about Benjamin Button, and then we have to talk about The Dark Knight, for God's sake. I know, because it was, we say all the time, as a year that changed everything. Mm. Benjamin Button really deflated me that year, That whole, just the whole thing right up to it you know, being teased with a a ton of nominations and then getting kicked to the curb because I remember I was already a huge Fincher fan and so I saw this movie. I I didn't see a press screening of it, but I saw it on Christmas morning and uh, came back and wrote my glowing review of it and then just kind of got... This is before I read any of the other reviews of it, and it just but my readers were all kind of meh on it, and it, that was deflating. And then the reviews themselves, there were a lot of good ones, but not a lot of really great ones. And I I kept feeling like this was a movie that was just being misunderstood and underappreciated. And the Oscar Oscar night just kind of ratified that opinion, and it made me feel, I don't know, it was not a it was a it was a crummy feeling for somehow. I don't know why I I took it so personally. Probably because it's a movie that. 
unlike any of Fincher's previous movies, really wears its heart on its sleeve and really sort of begs you to be emotional. Certainly are beautiful to watch. Dancing's all about the line. Line of your body. Sooner or later you lose that line and you never get it back. You were born in 1918, 49 years ago. I'm 43. We are almost the same age. Meeting in the middle. Finally caught up with the job. Wait. I want to remember us just as we are now. Yeah, and maybe partly, partly it's the same sort of thing that happened with Scorsese and The Aviator. People had the perception that Scorsese made movies like, um, um, like The Aviator in order because he was he was bidding really hard to win an Oscar. And mm-hmm. people might have thought the same thing about David Fincher, but if they thought that, they don't know David Fincher. He was making Benjamin Button because it's the movie he wanted to make, and he had his own reasons for making it. He was not chasing the Oscar. Just because it happened to be nominated for 13 in 13 categories doesn't mean that that was... Well, with the goal that he had in mind, right? Yeah. But people saw it like that. I believe that people perceived it that way. There was a nasty rumor going around that um, that that was the case that he that he uh, that he wanted the Oscar so bad. Blah blah blah. And that he was, had somehow sold out and made a kind of movie that mm-hmm. that people were comparing to Forrest Gump or something. You know. That's that's the main enduring criticism of it is because it had the same writer as Forrest Gump, Eric Roth, mm-hmm. yeah. and it had that same sort of epic structure that I think really lazy critics could dismiss it as an as a Forrest Gump knockoff. But to say that is to it's either to overestimate what Forrest Gump was or to totally underestimate what Benjamin Button was. Benjamin Button, although it was history spanning, history was always in the background. It was more about, you know, A, the aging process, and B, this idea of, of people and the brief window of time that we have to form connections with them and how easy it is for things to just never be at the right place at the right time Mm -hmm. to work out in a positive way. And it's just this really melancholy human story about aging and loss and all of these things that we have to deal with that I don't think Forrest Gump ever touched on except maybe briefly. Yeah, it's not, Benjamin Button's not an easy ride like Forrest Gump is. Forrest Gump is a movie that gives you um, kind of that, very traditional story that that you're going to walk home and feel, you know, you're going to feel redemption, you're going to feel conflict resolved, everything, all in one movie. And Fincher's movies are never like that. And and Benjamin Button was never going to be like that. It's much more... um, he doesn't like that. He, as a director, he likes to make people uncomfortable. He doesn't like to make them comfortable, and and that's really the key difference between the two movies. And Benjamin Button is is uncomfortable in the same way life is uncomfortable. It's it's so sad in a lot of ways to watch 
um, to watch him become so... He likes to leave you, likes for you to leave the theater feeling a little bit unsettled about his films. And I remember the people that I went to see Benjamin Button with on Christmas Day, the same way that you did, Craig, People were people I was with said this is the saddest Christmas movie I've ever seen. I mean, they, in the, even in the middle of the movie, they were looking at me like, "What have you dragged us to see?" Because it was it was bizarrely tragic. It is bizarrely yeah. tragic, but you yeah. know that's that's life. That's aging. Uh-huh, yeah. That's what made it beautiful. But it has mm-hmm. all the trappings of the big bloated feel goody. Uh, Forrest Gump kind of movie, but mm-hmm. it was yeah. exactly the opposite. It was almost like an answer to that movie, as though Eric Roth was apologizing for Forrest Gump. If you well, you're me. saying such really smart things about this movie, Craig. You're blowing the rest of us out of the water with your analysis of Benjamin Button. I'm really liking what you're saying. No, really not at all. Stuff. I just got to be in my bonnet about it because that totally <laughs> des- destroyed my whole year. Well, me too, because you know when it started out, I think the couple of the trade, I think it got a perfect score from. I know I'm looking right now. And the Hollywood Reporter gave it a perfect score, and Variety gave it like an 80 or 90 or something. So I thought that it was on its way to really doing well. But then all of a sudden, it's one of those movies where you get an initial a lot of support, and then a lot of critics saying, saying I'm not going to be part of that. I want to go there in the other direction. There's quickly a lot of backlash to it. Mm-hmm. I want to be contrary. I want to be contrarian about it. And so there were a lot of movie uh, critics that were really kind of mad about it. That's the thing is that I think it... it it strikes this weird middle ground where it doesn't satisfy the people who just want the happy feely movie, and it also kind of pissed off the hardcore Fincher fans because it mm-hmm. seemed like that kind of a movie when it really wasn't. I mean, it was, it was a million miles from Zodiac, but that's that's I thought what was great about it. It was, mm-hmm. it was an. Uh, it was less of an intellectual exercise than a lot of his other earlier films. I'm kind and, of. A- uh, I think that the cool kids who love, you know, um, Fight Club and stuff like that, kind of rejected it because of that. Right. I, right. I'm one of those people that just gets. I, I latch onto a movie and I'm just unwilling to give up on it. And when it got 13 nominations on Oscar nomination morning, I thought, okay, now it's going to get its second win. Mm. But then by Oscar night, Slumdog was nominated for 10 Oscars and won eight. And and Benjamin Button was nominated for 13 and only won three. So, like, that totally flipped what was going, what I expected, and what I wanted to have happen. The only, the only icing on the cake was, I think, like a, the day after the Oscars, Criterion announced that they were going to have a Criterion edition of Benjamin Button. And so that was like vindication. Yeah. It's also the highest-grossing movie of his career. Of Fincher's career? Yeah. yeah, not not adjusted for inflation, but still. How much did it make? I don't remember. I looked it up when we were originally going to podcast, but it was it was, I think probably less than, than, I can't remember now. Let me check. I'll find it real quick. It, uh, actually, it looks like it made 127 domestic and 333 million worldwide. So right, that's impressive. Which, yeah. which is not a lot considering it cost 150 million to make, but it's still. That's still, mm-hmm. his, that's still that's, his his best performance. Well, and that's go. another thing about Slumdog. Slumdog only cost fifteen million to yeah. make, and it were, it earned three hundred and seventy seven million worldwide. And if so the wanna, Oscars love that. If right? you want to win, do a the movie Oscar. on the cheap and make a mint off of it. That's how you win an Oscar. You don't win yeah. an Oscar by making a movie that costs a lot of money that doesn't make its money back. Not a chance. Right. So. And that, as far as the industry was concerned, that was probably the biggest knock against it. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. It, it so as a financial failure. So easy to see that Slumdog cost one-tenth what Benjamin Button cost to make, 
and then makes the same amount of money. Yeah, they love that. That always pits one against the other. Like, it's the same with the artist in Hugo. It was the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like, the artist exactly. created all this magic for this little of money, and Scorsese needed $100 million to make his movie. And, you know, they, they really resent the directors that spend a lot for some it's reason. The, it's the right? Little Miss Sunshine movie that could. Yeah, always. That's what you need in the Oscar race. You need one big, giant frontrunner that cost a whole shitload of money, and then you need the scrappy underdog that could, that cost nothing and made a whole shitload. That's what they prefer. And if you track it, the only movie that's made that's one that that cost more than I believe fifty million. I could be wrong because I haven't done this in a while. I used to do it every year, but the only movie that's won Best Picture since the I mean we're going back to two thousand I think. Uh, well, Chicago. I don't know how much it cost, but The Departed cost ninety million to make. Um, every other movie that's made. That's one best picture is right around, right in the 15, 20, 30 million range. King's Speech cost exactly 15 million to make, yeah. and it earned 414 million worldwide. So but you just you go, go for the Oscar race. You t- yeah, I mean, in the old days, we went by domestic. Nowadays, I guess we do go by worldwide. But I like to look at worldwide because it's just, you know, it's just blown away by the numbers. But it, Especially you know. now that it's such a worldwide business. It's a worldwide mm-hmm. business now. It didn't always used to be. That's right. why I'm usually stuck in domestic because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm an old timer and I remember the game early on. And yes, things have changed in the last five years. Now it's all about international. When you go back a certain number of years, you can't even find the worldwide gross of movies because they didn't even track it or keep... No. They couldn't even track it. They don't even bother to try to keep track of all that because, for one mm. thing, the foreign distributors claim so much of that money that the studio couldn't really say, well, it's part, that's part of ours. Right. It, that's how much things have changed. And yeah. for people like me, it's a little hard to switch back. People always go, why do you always go domestic? Well, it's just what I do. Mm. That's what I In always have In the first 70 done. years of Hollywood, they didn't report any box office at all. It wasn't a known thing. It was only until the very early 80s <laughs> that th- those numbers started being reported to the public. Yeah. I was going to say, I know where you're going with this, Craig. <laughs> Where was I going? I thought you were going to go Exactly what you said. And now everybody's an expert. Oh, that's implied. (laughs) And and I mean, and part of the wasn't part of the original slogan for living in cinema that we're not going to talk about box office. Yeah, probably. I love it when Craig gets Pretty mad much. at everybody. <laughs> but, you know, it, it really is worldwide or domestic. As long as you use the same uh, measuring stick for whatever you're talking about, it, it's all the same thing. The, the amounts of money are astronomical. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's amazing that it plays such a big part in the Oscar mentality. When well, it's time yeah, and it really... I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, it was a finished. I was just going to say, but it really does play a big part in yeah. the in the voting process. It Perception. really made a difference with um, Life of Pi and Gravity. Those were really the two big, big worldwide successes, especially Life of Pi. If you looked at Life of Pi domestic, you kind of went, well, it doesn't make that much. But everybody kept urging me, including you, Ryan, to include the, dom- the, the international box office where it made like 900 700 million or yeah, something. Yeah, right? it was insane. Yeah. So that was a huge difference. And that's what people were paying attention to. With another Life thing, I don't know if we talked about this earlier to, tonight already, because it seems like we've been talking for three hours already, but another <laughs> thing, too, about Life of Pi and Gravity both is that you feel like, in a way, that the studios have already collected their $700 million, and so they really could care less about the Oscars by the time Oscar night comes around, so they don't really push it so hard for Best Picture, and that might have been the reason that Life of Pi and Gravity both both slumped at the end, because the, uh, the, the studio wasn't really pushing it that hard anymore. How much more money can they bring out of it? Yeah, exactly. Right. right. But no, I mean I think they were still pushing it. It's just that it's just that um 
when you look at cost versus profit, you almost always look at, you separate domestic and international because they have different distributors too. Like yes, the uh, international distributors make all the international money and the and domestic. So the domestic ones pick up the cost. So cost versus profit. That's why I tend to keep it with domestic. But when you're talking about perception and you're talking about voting, then you're talking about now including worldwide. Um, but but yeah, I mean, when Benjamin Button, if it costs more than it made, it does not have a chance to win Best Picture, no matter how many nominations it got. Mm-hmm. That's a taint that you cannot shake. No, it's Ryan. A- Ryan's a taint. <laughs> I said taint. <laughs> Box office might be a good segue into The Dark Knight, but I don't want to get away from Benjamin Button without at least somebody mentioning how awesome Brad Pitt is in it. Oh my God! What about Kate Blanchett? But yeah, she's awesome too. Brad Pitt and, and Tilda Swinton. That's right. Yeah. Brad Pitt breaks my heart in that movie. I don't think he's ever been that good. He's great in, in Moneyball, too, but when he uh, emerges as the guy in his prime when he's on that motorcycle, it just, when I, you're watching that movie, you, you know what Brad Pitt looks like. You know how good looking he is, but you've mm-hmm. watched him age backwards as an old mm-hmm. man, as a tiny little wrinkled, ugly thing. And when he emerges as this, the, one of the most beautiful people on the planet, it's like it just, and then know, it's almost really... like the reverse of boyhood, isn't it? It's like instead yeah, of watching totally. the boy, instead of watching the kid grow up, you're watching, um, watching Brad Pitt grow down, and they do that really heartbreaking thing where in some of the final scenes of of Benjamin Button, they actually take Brad Pitt's face from former movies that he's done and paste them into the movie. So you, that's really him. That's really him 20 years ago, right? That you're seeing on screen. Yeah. Because they take his face from the River Runs Through It. Right, I know. When he was a kid, and it was just like just breaks your heart. Just... It, it is. It's it's so sweet. And in fact, I was thinking we didn't talk about Boyhood in part one, but I was going to say about Boyhood, it's like uh, Benjamin Button, and that I suspect watching Boyhood at different like Emma saw it. She's sixteen. She's as old as the lead character is when the movie. No, no, he's a little bit older probably because he's in college. So, but she, she watches it as now and then when she watches it as a teenager in college it'll be different for her when she watches it as a parent of a young child it'll be different for her and when she watches it as a parent of a grown kid it'll be a whole different experience so i'm just choked up hearing you say that it's true though that's what the movie's like i mean it just beats the shit out of you emotionally because i think when you're a teenager you don't have that sense of the passage of time yet because your whole life seems to have taken forever up to that point you don't realize that within the next few years shit's going to start going downhill and it's going to go faster and faster and faster and you're never going to be able to hang on to it and it's just even i get choked up just talking about it because even as not as a parent i I've had that sense that life is getting away from me and that I can't have back what I had before, and it's no. just devastating. And nothing marks that time more than watching a child age in front of your eyes. And right. that's why boyhood is like a punch in the stomach, because it happens in t- three hours. This kid ages a lifetime. and Not a lifetime, but in Benjamin Button, it's a lifetime. But it's the same mm-hmm. idea as boyhood. It's just d- done with the visual effects, but it's still aging process, and it, it, it is like a punch in the stomach both times. You're just, you can't stop it you can't hit the pause button you can't make him the right age and her the right age so that they can be together one is Mm. always going to be younger older than the other and one is going to die it's just you know that's life you know what are you going to do that's that's Mm. it that's what it's all about you know i had gone to a brothel i'd had my first drink said goodbye to one friend and buried another 
1936, when I was coming to the end of the 17th year of my life, I packed my bag and said goodbye. I knew life being what it was, I'd probably never see them again. Good luck to you, son. Thank you. I love you, Mom. Oh, I love you too, baby. I want you to say your prayers every night here. from everywhere. Very moving, and the haters can suck it. <laughs> he made a great movie, and he's a great artist, and if he's misunderstood in his time, well, that's their problem, I think. In the end, I think he'll be vindicated as one of the the greats. He already is considered one of the greats. Venture. If I were a betting man, I would bet that he doesn't spend a lot of time losing sleep thinking about it. No, he doesn't. In fact, he's, well, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty self-deprecating person. So, um, uh, Dark Knight, the movie that changed Oscars forever. Yeah. For better and for better at first and then it turns out for worse. Maybe, because it, it, they just kept trying to figure out a way to account for movies like The Dark Knight. And then when they found out that they could do that, other movies sneaked in that they didn't really want. And so they tried to back off of it, and it just it's turned into just a clusterfuck. And, right. And, um, and how many times have I said the F word into podcast? Tonight? I know, and then we're going to get criticized. We love your podcast, but why all the foul language? <laughs> Sorry, I apologize. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> but the thing is, well, I do say explicit on the podcast warning. Yeah. Um, the Dark Knight was the year was kind of colored and overtaken by the announcement of Heath Ledger's sudden death, and mm -hmm. uh, I can't remember if it came after Dark Knight had made that shitload of money that it made, um, or if before was before. Okay, so his... Even before it came out, he died, and that, that drove died, a lot of the interest in it. He died in April. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. So it came out before he died. Huh. No, no, he died no, before he died. I mean, he died before... He died eight before. weeks after he died. Came out after he died. That's that really drove weird. a lot of the initial interest in it beyond the typical comic book crowd was right. his death. Because people were thinking, oh, he was so good in that, and now he's dead. He was so good in it, and, and then people were talking about his performance. And, and then when they saw it, they were blown away by how good he was, and now the fact that he's dead, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. There was some talk, just initially, because we soon got over it, because we could see the groundswell happening for Heath Ledger, and there was no way around it then. In fact, it was going to, it, I would have felt sorry for any actor, any supporting actor who had beat Heath Ledger that year, because they would have been hated for eternity, right? If they had. So it's lucky that no one beat him that year. Well, hello, beautiful. You must be Harvey's squeeze. And you are beautiful. 
Well, you look nervous. Is it the scars? You want to know how I got them? Come here. Hey. Look at me. So I had a wife, beautiful, like you, who tells me I worry too much. Who tells me I ought to smile more? Who gambles and gets in deep with the sharks? Hey. One day they carve her face. We have no money for surgeries. She can't take it. I just want to see her smile again. Hmm? I just want her to know that I don't care about the scars. So, I stick a razor in my mouth and do this to myself. And you know what? She can't stand the sight of me. She leaves. Now I see the funny side. Now I'm always smiling. <laughs> A little fight in you. I like that. And you're going to love me. But at, the, at first we were talking about the fact that the Oscar is kind of reluctant to give Oscars out posthumously. They don't, haven't done it that often, and so we were thinking that maybe this was going to not be helpful, not be not be a good thing. But it turned out that it, the, the, his performance and the and the sympathy for him outweighed all of that. It did, and I think that it it really drove affection for that film. Anyway, it was a great movie, I thought, mm-hmm. and uh, really big on the website. Really, a, a very much a uniting force. The love for that movie, I brought brought in a lot of readers to my site, and we were really into it and fighting really hard for it to to get into the best picture race. Um, but the reader came in at the last minute and stole its spot. And that's really what, well, this, that's so the story goes. A lot of us seem to think that it wasn't getting in anyway because they were never going to pick that movie as their number one, those Academy voters, when they had five uh, mm-hmm. choices on their ballot. They're not going to pick The Dark Knight as one of their favorite movies unless they're like a fanboy or an adolescent. They're not going to pick that movie. So uh, it maybe it never really had a chance. We'll never know. We only know that it got a lot of Guild support, including a DGA nomination, I believe. So mm-hmm. it was surprising when it didn't make it in in the end. Uh, very surprising. Um, and it ended up <clears throat> making the Oscars decide to expand the Best Picture race to 10 from 5, which meant that for two years they would pick 10 nominees. And then after that they decided 10 was too many for Oscar voters to have to pick, so an Oscar voters now pick 5 again. But the Academy chooses more than five for the Best Picture win uh, nominees. So The Dark Knight mm-hmm. shook everything up, and now it's kind of like they're probably not going to go back to five because they like having more movies in the race. It definitely seems to be generating a lot more financials for the movies than it did before. Mm-hmm. So, but the new system of of uh, tabulating the votes makes the number makes no matter how many they have, whether it's five, six, seven, eight, or nine, they're more homogenized than they would have been whether if they had just given made ask everyone to name ten movies. Yeah, when they named ten, it was they people had the freedom to say, okay, well, I like uh, I like um, um, Winter's Bone, and I'm not that wouldn't have been one of my five, and I like um, what's that that sci-fi movie that got in i like district um, nine district nine and that wouldn't mm-hmm. have been one of my five and they might have said i like the dark knight and that wouldn't have been one of my five but mm-hmm. now they're still picking five so they're not going to pick those movies so what you get is 
just more of the same. You get more <laughs> movies of their weird taste. You get more Oscar bait instead of the. You, <laughs> you get, you get more, more and more Oscar bait. bait instead of the nice fringe movies that we enjoyed seeing for a couple of years. Yeah, so they're not getting genre movies in like they did when they had ten, and they're not getting small indies directed by women like they did when they were ten. So really, they haven't solved the problem that The Dark Knight presented. Um, now they had for two years after, but Academy members were um, dissatisfied. They didn't like having to pick ten. They couldn't find ten to pick. And they, I think and they were thing afraid this, a movie like Avatar was going to win. And they were also right. afraid they didn't like the way that it looked when a movie like The Blind Side and uh, uh, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close looked among the other winners, among the other nominees. It looked like that those were anomalies, and so they figured that well, maybe that tenth movie we can do without that tenth movie is going, is going to be something like that Man. because it really doesn't. One, one of these things is not like the other. Right. Right, so the change was negligible, but there is no denying that the Dark Knight, Dark Knight snub, and the subsequent upset over that snub, um, people took to be genre prejudice and mm-hmm. um, prejudice against Christopher Nolan. Um, looking back on it now, it doesn't really seem that way. It's just that uh, Heath Ledger's death added to that. It added to mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the sadness and the sympathy and the support for the film. So people were fighting hard for it. So uh, people were heartbroken when they didn't see it get in. Probably. And another. Well. Sorry. Go no, ahead. go ahead. Another thing that you were talking about, the way that it really um, increased traffic so much on the site, is it hit that sweet spot of being a movie that the fanboys could love and also a movie that people who love just fantastically well-made cinema love because it's an excellent movie in its own right, no matter what genre it is. It's almost, it's, in fact, the genre is almost like some kind of really extravagantly um, just... A film noir, in a way, you know, it's it's yeah. totally its own thing. That nothing had ever been seen to that degree before. And it's better than um, either of the other Batman movies. I think it's better than yeah. um, Batman Begins, and it's better than The Dark Knight Rises. It's just mm-hmm. it stands on its own as a really entertaining film. And a lot of that is to do with Ledger. A lot of it's to do with his directing, you know, um, which is clean in that movie. Really, really clean. A lot cleaner than it has been since. And the screenplay, so. I think, too. Yeah, it's a good movie, Dark Knight. And I, you know, I've always been of the. I've never wanted to blame the reader because I like the reader, and so I don't want to. I don't want to cast. I don't want to make the reader the bad guy in the story. I've always felt that if the if uh, Frost Nixon had not been given a slot so early, it was like a. As soon as people heard that Frost Nixon was being made, and they saw the cast and they saw the director, they thought this is a guaranteed Oscar nominee, a Best Picture nominee. And I have always felt that. It was Frost Nixon who stole um, the Dark Knight spot. <laughs> you thought that, but you're wrong because I know. I Frost know. You, Nixon... You've told me that time and time again because I and, I and I do look now that I understand the campaigning more. I do. I, you you convinced me a little bit, well, but at be... the time I was I was blaming Frost Nixon. Yeah, because the the um, the. Um, uh, movies that you know they just they get their place they get their little yeah. place and mm-hmm. then they and there's no way to shake that and they the have a place that... reserved and that's just it that's the way that's, that's just that's it the way and then there was <laughs> you hated Frost Nixon I so did I just don't like that movie at all and <laughs> and, I, and I do like the reader and I'm, I hate to see people talk badly about the reader because I do like it a lot I don't think I, th- I think it's a dangerous game to try and read the mind of Oscar voters though and to make assumptions mm-hmm. about why they did or, or didn't vote for something or why something got nominated and something else didn't it's kind of an unknowable especially when you're dealing with not an individual you're dealing with a group of people 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we look at patterns, you know, and, and the patterns are this most likely that if this movie's been already nominated for A, B, C, and D, it's most likely that, and it has this publicist, that movie had Universal and Tony Angelotti. Mm-hmm. It, it was like Michael Clayton. It had its place. You know, it wasn't I going I think that anywhere. your Tony Angelotti, like, emailed you or something. He said, can you make Ryan be still about Frost Nixon? Make him shut up about criticizing Frost Nixon? I, I feel bad remember. about it, but I do remember that happening. Uh, you, you let me get away with that for a long time. But then he said, you know, Tony's wondering why you're just always pissing on Frost Nixon. Yeah, I don't really remember it. I don't even think I had ads for that then because I, I wasn't even taking ads. Oh, no, it wasn't even a matter of ads. I just think that he had kind of a relationship with you. He knew you yeah, as a friend. We don't anymore have that relationship. But, yes, we did. Um, and, and that's the thing is that, um, I, you know, I, I saw how the reader... The reader was, you know, the Oscar Whisperer's movie. It was Weinstein's movie. It, you know, yeah. we, we had something to do with that. We championed it early. I mean, we championed it very late in the race. Mm-hmm. But it was absolutely right in the fucking Oscar wheelhouse. My God, it's about Nazis, for God's sake, and World oh, War II, oh, oh. and it has naked mm-hmm. Kate Winslet. I mean, and it's, a, you know, it's the kind Just of movie that they like. There's no chance. The pedigree chan- of it. Yeah, there was no chance it was going to, it was going to, um, they even joked about that very thing on on uh, Ricky Gervais' uh, series, right? I mean, saying that they, that she knew that she could win an Oscar if she if she if she was in a movie about Nazis. Right. <laughs> I mean, it was. And but the the thing about Weinstein is he knows exactly how to bypass the chatter. That's that's mm-hmm. how he is able usually to to surprise everybody and get a movie in. And in fact. A lot of companies have borrowed that, like the people with the help and with uh, the blind side and uh, extremely loud, that you, you go over the critics and over the chatter and you go right to the voters. You play to the Oscar crowd, you, not yeah, the people you, who are talking about it. Yes, and you have parties. And you do it at the last minute. And you have parties and you bring Kate Winslet and you have invite people to watch the movie. And and plus you- there's Stephen Daldry, who had already been nominated twice in a row for the first two movies he's ever directed. He got nominated for Best Director for both of them. And then for the third movie he ever directed in his life, he got nominated again. So it's like I said earlier today to someone, every time Stephen Daldry left the house, he would get nominated for an Oscar. Is he, is he the reader? Was he the reader? Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, he was? Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, there you go. Stephen Daldry, if you've ever seen him in action, I saw him be at a, during a Q&A with uh, Pete Hammond. Stephen Daldry, he's, he is like the actor's favorite director. He's really chummy with them and incredibly effervescent and charismatic person. And he took over the interview with Pete Hammond. He stopped, mm-hmm. Pete Hammond stopped asking questions, and, and Stephen Daldry had. If you've never seen Stephen Daldry in action, you might not know how powerful he is behind the scenes. But once you see him, I went to the special LACMA screening of uh, Extremely Loud and, and, and Incredible. Because I think that's his movie, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It is. Yes. And he was up on stage. That was the one. And Sandra Bullock was there. And le- listen, all you have to do is be a charming director and bring out all those stars at a party, and it be a kind of a moving experience that people don't have to apologize for liking, which is right. that kind of mm-hmm. movie and the reader, and uh, you get the votes. Yeah. So this, but but it surprises people in the Oscar blogging world because they always think that people are listening to them, and to a degree they kind of do. But like like some of the very important strategists have always said, all you can really do as an Oscar um, blogger is, is get people to see the movie. You can energize them and motivate them to see it. But once they see it, it's totally obviously up to them after that. And and Weinstein's um, uh, gift is knowing what to put them in front of that they're going to like. Right. He's got a 
he's got a sixth sense about what the Oscar voters are going to go for. Yeah, and and uh, Frost Nixon was one of those movies. It was right in that same, you know, vein of um, in the club, mm-hmm. right in the wheelhouse, right in the. It, it just fit all. It it touched all. It touched all the buttons, ticked off all the boxes. The reader too. There was that suspense thing going on in, in December. We you didn't even know for sure whether the reader was going to be ready in time. They kept saying that, well, we're not going to have it ready, and then they said, maybe we will, maybe we won't. And so it was like the last minute entry too. Mm. So there was that kind of. Keep in surprise. mind though that we're still dealing with five nominees in 2008, and with five mm. nominees. Uh, I don't think you're doing the preferential, although maybe they always did preferential with nominees. I can't remember. But with five nominees, it's a little bit different um, than it is when you have this kind of strange thing that they're doing now. Now, the way it would have worked is is the reader would have gotten in, and probably so would The Dark Knight, maybe. Maybe. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. enough people picked it as number one, maybe. Um, but... It's it's easier to fix the system when you're dealing with five than when you're dealing with more than five in a weird kind of unpredictable random way. So now it's much harder to gauge best picture. It's much harder to to get to manipulate the race, the way things are because of the mm-hmm. weird preferential system. And it all depends on two. We've said many times before. It's not only the, how the quality of the movie by itself, but it's it's how the movie compares to the other things that are out that year. And when you look at the other things that it that that um that the five nominees had to go up against, there was a it was really you had those five and then after that there's a really steep drop off. What yeah. else do you have besides those five that year that could right. have possibly been nominated? Right. Not much. Right. Right, I know it's true. That's a really yeah, good point. I'm looking at a, a rundown right now. There was there was Precious and there was um the the wrestler and happy go lucky and that's about it really vicky cristina barcelona mm-hmm, yeah okay vicky cristina barcelona you mean <laughs> <laughs> i hated that movie <laughs> god i know guys like it though so you can't mess with vicky cristina it's like every man's girls like it too no they don't it's not it's not just guys it's just guys what else do we want to talk about from 2008 what are the categories what are there of course we're really happy that Kay Winslet finally got her Oscar so that that was a good thing there was the there was oh god that was was our our mixed feelings and our our splits about uh, Sean Penn and and Mickey Rourke which we've already kind of covered right did we talk about that um, yeah, we did. We talked about okay. Sean Penn. But, but remember Kate Winslet? Because she won two awards at the Golden Globes, and she kept having to give these speeches. And then for a while there, people were getting, like, criticizing her, saying she she was, you know, faking her graciousness. And do you remember that? And then she had to, like, mm-hmm. se- sex it up oh, yeah. on the cover of, you know, those magazines. And she, she really pulled it out. Like, you wouldn't mm-hmm. think someone who's been nominated that many times that got that much acclaim for her part would have had to do it but that's what you have to do to win Oscars just like that mm-hmm. what she had to do she really because had to go one everywhere thing she, she was up against Meryl Streep that year for doubt and you can never underestimate Meryl Streep because people were already saying then that it's time for her third Oscar right 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 she's great yeah. in doubt though. Uh-huh. And uh, Melissa Leo, who you really championed really, really well for Frozen River, who had come out of nowhere I wasn't aware of her before and now she's just everywhere right that wasn't the, the year that she did the fake ads, was it? Or was that for... No, that was for... The Fighter. Um, I don't even remember. Was it? Maybe. Was it for The Fighter or for Frozen River? Yeah, it was for Fighter. You're right. It's okay. for Fighter. The Are you fighter. sure? I'm going to look and see. Maybe it was for Frozen River. Pretty sure it was Frozen River. Was it? 
consider right those consider ads where she's in the front yeah, coat she, but yeah, she, yeah. she bought them herself and everybody was aghast uh-huh. but it took it it ended up backfiring because um it ended up turning into a wonderful way to uh defend her and rally around her and it ended up probably helping her win just the fact that people were humiliated by those ads because it kind of made her look more desperate not desperate but um made people feel sorry for her and rally around her instead yeah, of... Yeah, because they hated to see her be, be, be beaten up on. Yeah, for doing something that, like everybody does anyway. You know? Yeah, since the, since the studio and distributor couldn't afford to, to mount a campaign for her, she decided to do it on her own, and why not? You know, yeah. I think that's fantastic that she would try to do that. I remember writing a lot of defense in defense articles of her, even mm-hmm. though there was another performance that year that I liked better, and I can't remember which one it was. For Best Actress, you mean? Supporting... Oh, yeah. Oh, supporting right. Uh, uh, it would have been... No. Probably Viola Davis, actually, or Taraji P. Henson, one of them. No, okay, wait, right. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. all mixed up. Never mind, just forget about me. That's what I just said. <laughs> I, if, we're not, if we don't stick with the year that we're talking about, I'm lost because well, I have I, all the, How did we get to all Frozen All the web pages River. right in front of me, all the tabs I can click on. But I thought we were on 2008. How did we get to Frozen River? Oh, wait. Here, probably, oh, she's Frozen actress. Oh, she's never mind. For Sorry. Best actress, not supporting actress. I thought supporting, yes. Frozen River, Melissa yeah. Leo, yes, we're on the same day. So well, who yeah. did I want to win that year? Probably Kate Winslet, I guess. But... Um, and Hathaway was nominated for Rachel Getting Married. I think you hated that movie. I think you hated <laughs> I know. that movie. Re- Craig likes that movie, so <laughs> okay. we'll just and skip over was, that then one. Then there was Changeling with Angelina Jolie. I liked that, but yeah. not mm-hmm. a winner. I think I felt like it was time for Kate Winslet to finally win. Yeah. But looking at it now, at all those performances, my preference would be straight for these five. That was amazing performance. And an amazing movie, really. All four performances in that movie were fantastic. That's another one that kind of got kicked to the curb by the cool kids, and I came out strong on. I really loved out. Me too. I wish it had gotten nominated. That's one that if they had extended, I think it would have gotten in. It made Uh my top ten for the year, and I'm almost embarrassed about that because that movie's been shit on so badly ever since. I don't know Mm -hmm. who would dare to shit on it. I love it. I watch it constantly. Whenever it's on, I watch that movie. To me, it's a master class in acting. Just watching the performances, Uh that's all that it takes for me to be just totally into it. It it was like like back in the 60s when the whole cast of a movie could be nominated, like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf or something. All four actors were nominated in all four categories. They were great. The same level of acting intensity to it, too. Mm -hmm. The screenplay, it it was nominated for all. Also, by the John Patrick Shanley, who Shanley, who took on the director's job. Seriously, not but, a weak link in that movie. Not a weak mm-hmm. link anywhere. It's great. Roger Deakins was a cinematographer, who I feel like Roger Deakins directed the movie. Really, when I look at it now, I think that Roger Deakins actually directed the movie himself. <laughs> <laughs> if I was going to direct a movie, I'd want Roger Deakins to be my cinematographer. Can I just <laughs> right. say that right you're now? You're going to be in a movie. If you're going to be like John Patrick Shanley Shan- and and try to take on the director's job, you want somebody like like Deakins like, Seriously, by your side. You don't have to do anything. It's just like okay. That's going to be hard for Angelina Jolie because people are going to be giving Deacons all shitloads of credit for that movie. Yeah. You know uh-huh. they are. That's a shame, but you're right. I hadn't even thought of that. But, you know, um, that's what they did with Kevin Costner when he made um, Dance with Wolves because his, his cinematographer was so good, everybody. In fact, I know someone on the set who was, who was spent on the set was actually um, dating somebody very closely involved in that production and said that he absolutely 100% leaned on Dean Semler. To, mm-hmm. to help him. That may have been the buzz, but it wasn't enough to keep him from winning. He still won. He won, right. and Dean uh-huh. Semler won. No, it wasn't the buzz. That was behind-the-scenes insider info that I knew. That um, That's what I'm calling buzz. 
you know, I'm, I'm assuming just... that that was that was the word within the industry. That, yeah, probably that, that Semler directed it. Yes, exactly. Right. But Costner mm-hmm. still won. He still won. Yes, he was the. And Semler won too. They both won. They both got to win. Yeah, and just like with, um, they said the same thing with uh, Hurt Locker. They said that Mark Bull directed Hurt Locker, and she still won, and and he still won. So. Um, Aren't we like a fount of information tonight? <laughs> we just know everything. Something going. that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I've been I've been kind of an Oscar buzzkill again this week, so I want to point out the two g- bits of good news. Besides, well, actually, the two main bits of good news. My number one and two movie both actually won in their respective categories. It just happened to be that one was a documentary and the other was animated, and that's Man on Wire and Wally were t- my two favorite Aww. movies of the whole year, and they both have Oscars. They're so good, both of them. Both mm. of them are fantastic. Wally was probably the best movie of that year, actually, all the way around. Wally is right up there with Benjamin Button to me. It's just, I think it's the most prophetic film about American culture, the environment, our health, um, being kind of taken over by consumerism and corporate culture. And it's one of the sweetest, most beautiful, swoony love stories ever put to screen. social gathering at which lively dancing would take place. Auto Earth is amazing! These are called farms. Humans would put seeds in the ground, pour water on them, and they'd grow food like pizza. Good night, Captain. Psst, computer, 
Divine dancing. Dancing, a series of movements involving two partners where speed and rhythm match harmoniously awesome. with music. It's, uh, it's, it's an adult fairy tale disguised as a kid's movie. That's what I've loved about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's an adult fairy tale. Yeah, and in fact, I think adults almost liked it better than kids. <laughs> kids went to it, though. It made a ton of bank. It's just, yeah. people, I think little kids don't care if it's animated, they'll watch it. My daughter loved it. That's, well, that's that much I do know. We watched it over and over again together. And um... Oh, Burn After Reading was this year, you guys. How could we oh, forget right. that? Oh, right, absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Okay, Burn After Reading, definitely they tried to sell it for the Oscars, but it was not going to be... Somehow it never... Like, they tried really hard. It was focus features. Um, I remember them buying ads on my site. They really pushed for it, but it didn't... It wasn't, like, a movie for its time. It just didn't find its audience. It didn't fit into the Oscar mold. It never I rem did well I'm with sorry, them. go ahead. No, I, I, I remember the minute that it came out, David Poland sniffed that it wasn't an Oscar contender. And I remember being pissed off because I didn't give a shit. It was still a great movie. Yeah. No, and that, that's, that's another area where me and Oscar part ways. When, when a movie that's great, that has Oscar buzz for whatever reason, and then turns out not to have what it takes to be an Oscar movie, then suddenly it's perceived as not being actually good and that's just ridiculous right that doesn't that doesn't gel that doesn't make sense and nobody should ever think that way hopefully uh younger generations won't grow up to think that way but yeah um burn after reading one of my obviously one of my favorite movies uh, my daughter's favorite movies it's one we quote constantly with each other and um that's so funny because i was just about to say that i think it's one of the least for me it's one of the least quotable movies of of, of all the cohen canon but i just think mm -hmm. maybe that's because i don't had i don't know anybody who would understand the quotes if i quoted it so they wouldn't know what i was on about you know because none of the people that i know have seen it right that's you the and thing Emma have both seen it and are fond of it I, yeah. well i remember when um uh big lebowski first came out um craig is one of those people i was one of those people that i was an immediate i fell in love with the movie immediately and i watched it and i had all the quotes pretty early but I watched it go from being like dismissed and ignored to ultimately being a huge cult favorite. And I always thought that would happen with Burn After Reading. It hasn't yet. I'm not sure if it ever will, but it does have the same kind of quirky, funny, um, obtuse, stick in your craw kind of humor that big lebowski has you know and what it doesn't have is lebowski himself and i think that's the element that, that made that one become a cult favorite right. just just lebowski and the whole lebowski lifestyle really started to appeal to people and they started he's to get a guy that, that college kids <laughs> can get behind when they're sitting yeah. around getting stoned because that's all he does is sit around getting right. stoned but, but burn after reading doesn't have anyone you want to get behind oh you, my when God. you want to absolutely avoid all the people who are no i totally reading. want to get behind um, what's his name Emma and her friends and us were always laughing hysterically, you know, crying with laughter about a lot of lines in that. For, for instance, I found it on the floor there, <laughs> just lying there, you know, when the right. guy's talking uh -huh. about the disc, just lying there. <laughs> Take 
can I talk to you about our Mickey Mouse HMO? Uh-huh, hang on. This is some heavy shit. Is it my date list? <laughs> no, fuck. You know, I'm trying to reinvent myself in these procedures, which are so incredibly not cheap. What is that? I can't believe this. This is like intelligent shit. I'm not comfortable with this. This is like, is like, I, I can't believe this shit I'm seeing. Manolo found it. On the floor there. Yeah, Manolo found like this CD just lying in a locker, locker floor, ladies locker. Just and lying there. I'm like, what, someone's music or what? And I come in here and it's these files, man. I'm not comfortable with this. I'm talking about sig int and signals and shit and which signals means code, you know? It was just lying there. Talking here about department heads and their names and shit. And then there's these other files that are just like, Numbers arrayed. Numbers and dates and numbers and numbers and dates and numbers and... I think that's the shit, man. The raw intelligence. I'm not touching this. I want this out of here. Just throw it out? No, you can't do that. You should put up a note in the ladies' locker room. Put up a note? Highly classified shit found? Signals intelligence shit? CIA shit? Hello? Did anybody lose their secret CIA shit? I don't think so. I don't know. You figure it out. But uh, I'm not comfortable with this, and I want this out of hard bodies. Uh, we're running a gym here. God. Manolo, you didn't find this. I find it on the floor there. Uh, yeah, I know, but... Right there on the floor there. Just lying there. Like the whole thing is so funny, the Shaggy Dog story. And then and then John Malkovich has a bunch of funny lines like, Whose ass didn't I kiss? You know, that's one <laughs> great line. Of course I you think I'm an alcoholic because you're a Mormon. Yeah. To you everyone's an alcoholic. Everyone's an alcoholic. But it's but it's not. We, I, look, we're we're not we're not terminating you. This is an assault. I have a drinking problem? Fuck you, Peck. You're a Mormon. Ozzy. Next to you, we all have a drinking problem. What the fuck is this? Whose ass didn't I kiss? Huh? Let's be honest. Okay. Um, I mean, let listen. us be fucking honest. This is a crucifixion. This is political. And don't tell me it's not. Or when he goes, you're part of a league of morons. <laughs> I love Malkovich. I love his character because his yeah. character is totally right. He is surrounded by morons. Oh, he's a total so asshole funny. and he ends up murdering people and that's not cool, but his frustration is real. And we Anybody do. who's ever been in a job or in a place where you're just surrounded by stupid people. Osborne Cox. And you, I take it, are Mr. Black? Yes, I am. You have the money? Uh, $50,000? That's what was agreed upon. Osborne Cox. All right, let me explain something to you, Mr. Black. You know who I am, I know who you are. Perhaps. But appearances can be deceptive. Yeah. What you're engaged in is blackmail. That is a felony. That's for starters. Appearances can be deceptive. I'm a mere good Samaritan. Who Secondly, the unauthorized a... dissemination of classified material is a federal crime. If you ever carried out your proposed threat, you would experience such a shitstorm of consequences, my friend, that your empty little head would be spinning 
faster than the wheels of your Schwinn bicycle back there. You think that's a Schwinn? No! <laughs> Give me the fucking floppy or the CD or whatever the fuck it is. As soon and as I'll you give us the way. money, Dick Watt. You fuck! Give it to me, fucker! That's such a great movie, honestly. This is one of the funniest, funniest movies I've ever seen. But it, but it did. It had the disadvantage of following No Country for Old Men. And so people think, yeah. people are prepared to think, all right, finally the Coens have settled into something that we can, the kind of movie that we understand and that we, and we want them to do more of, and they did exactly the opposite kind of thing to follow up with. And that confounds people and bugs people, I think, when, when you don't give them what they're expecting. They also didn't know what to make of George Clooney, because George Clooney plays like a geek. <laughs> he plays a doofus for the first time. Well, second time in his career. He did it for the Coens previously for Oh Brother, We're Out There, but this was a whole other level of doofusness. <laughs> He's like, I have anaphylactic shock. <laughs> oh god uh, and you have to watch it just for the last scene where he you know he's running around in his bathrobe that's the, the background on my twitter page that scene of him and you are my wife's lover no and what are you doing here I know you you're the guy from the gym. I'm not here representing our bodies. Oh, yes. I know very well what you represent. You represent the idiocy of today. I don't represent that either. Oh, yeah. You're the guy at the gym when I ask about that moronic woman. She's not a moron. You're in league with that moronic woman. You're part of a league of morons. No. Oh, yes. You see, you're one of the morons I've been fighting my whole life. My whole fucking life. But guess what? Today, I win. I watched it to refresh my memory about it just a couple of weeks ago. And what I love about it is that Emmanuel Lebesky was the cinematographer. In the beginning of that movie, the opening shot and the ending shot have got to be the longest, craziest, long-distance, long-tracking shots that anyone has ever filmed. Yeah. Right? Because it starts in outer space, and then it zooms right in to Earth and goes through the roof of a building, and it ends up on somebody, somebody's shoes walking. And then the, the, the end of the movie does the reverse shot and goes shoots out into outer space from, from Earth and back into orbit. Right. It's amazing. I mean, it's all special effects. It's not. It's not on, in camera, of course, but it's really incredible that they open and close and and, and book book uh, bookend it that way. You've been listening to part two of episode sixty nine of Oscar Podcast with Craig Kennedy, Ryan Adams, and Sasha Stone from AwardsDaily.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast.